Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, where we talk about the news, tech trends, and the long arc of innovation. I'm Zorin. You heard me on the previous episode with Sonal. And this week, we're covering two items, including the news about the breakup of healthcare joint venture Haven, which brought together Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase three years ago in a much-heralded effort to lower healthcare costs. First up, though, is the fast, still-developing story on crypto and government regulation. FinCEN, which is the Treasury Department's financial crimes enforcement network, proposed a new rule targeting cryptocurrency holders' ability to transact using self-hosted wallets. These are the software applications for storing crypto that allow people to transact on the blockchain directly rather than going through financial institutions. The rule would require banks and other financial businesses to keep records and verify the identities not only of their own customers, but also notably their customers' counterparties or people with whom the customer transacts in certain cases. Many in the crypto industry see this proposal as flawed and having potentially damaging implications for innovation. Full disclosure, A16Z has publicly opposed this plan and has said it plans to join others in the industry in challenging the rule in court. You can read our blog post on the topic at a16z.com slash rule. So that's a quick summary and some context. Our experts for this segment are A16Z general partner Katie Hahn and operating partner Anthony Albanese. Anthony was previously chief regulatory officer of the New York Stock Exchange, and Katie was a federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice for over a decade. She starts by sharing the big picture. What would happen to crypto and broader fintech innovation in general if the FinCEN rule in its current form were to take effect? Look, this will have undoubtedly, if passed as drafted, Um, it would have a chilling effect on the crypto space. Although it purports just to reach self-hosted wallets, it in fact would chill all kinds of perfectly legitimate commercial activities like staking and dApps. Those are decentralized apps. And again, here, what we've seen is it creates this cloud of uncertainty. So you're going to have crypto entities and those participants in the crypto ecosystem left not knowing whether or not certain activities are permissible. Um, and we've seen this with all kinds of regulations over the past seven years in this space, where you know an agency will promulgate a rule or issue some guidance or someone will give a speech, and then it's just not clear what the rule is. So I think that's really problematic. And the U.S. should be taking the lead on innovation, not continuing to add burdensome regulations um, that get us further behind. And my concern is that's exactly what this regulation would do, just get the U.S. further behind in this really important area for the economy um, that the U.S. should really be leading in. And we're all for well-reasoned and sensible regulation in the crypto space. What we don't want is regulatory uncertainty. And that's more of what we're getting here with this proposed rule. So ostensibly, this rule is aimed at combating domestic and international money laundering and other financial crimes, which is, in fact, uh, the mission of FinCEN. Wouldn't this rule help do those things? As a former federal prosecutor who did a whole lot of money laundering cases, um, I can tell you that the existing money laundering and know your customer regulations are not particularly effective. I've said before, and this has been testified to uh, in front of Congress by, by the way, Treasury and FinCEN officials, that 99.9% of money laundering succeeds already in the fiat world. And frankly, we think crypto is way better for traceability because of this kind of digital trail that's left. One example of this was the Twitter hacks we had during the summer where Obama, Biden, Elon Musk, their followers were, were uh, scammed into sending their assets to, to wallets and investigators were able to use those digital breadcrumbs to uh, find the identities of the people who had set up those wallets. Not only that, Zorin, the Twitter hack is one example. Another is the billion dollars in assets that the U.S. government just seized. And by the way, it was a billion dollars when they seized it a few weeks or a month ago. It's likely grown in value since that time. Um, the government basically acknowledged at that time that had that not been sitting in a crypto wallet, they would not have accomplished that seizure. 
So that's more evidence of kind of the digital trail nature of crypto. So what this proposed regulation is doing is it's targeting self-hosted wallets and users' ability to transact with their cryptocurrency without using a financial institution. Transactions greater than $3,000 trigger record-keeping requirements, and transactions greater than $10,000 require that a report be submitted to FinCEN. The real issue here and the dramatic expansion of, of the Bank Secrecy Act here is that the rule requires covered entities to provide the name and physical address of each counterparty of the financial institution's customer in the transaction. Now, this is completely novel. Um, There's no such requirement under the BSA that's applied to any other sector of the financial industry today. Banks don't have to do this when they're dealing with currency other than crypto. And uh, it's completely different from existing CTR, which is currency transaction reporting requirements that exist for banks. I think the biggest negative effect is that it is going to drive users offshore and to unregistered exchanges. And what that's going to do is severely impair law enforcement's ability to do its job and to fight financial crime. So a proposed rule that is allegedly intended to assist in the prosecution of financial crime is really going to have the opposite effect because it's such an easy workaround. And they are so much better off law enforcement when they have the blockchain trail that they can follow. In fact, a whole industry has emerged around the blockchain trail. You have all of these companies now that engage in blockchain analytics, and and they all work very closely with the government, helping them prosecute cases using the blockchain trail. So this proposed rule came out just before the holidays and elicited a strong response from the crypto industry. What is the industry saying about this? Well, I think the industry is saying two kind of things. The first is procedural. You know, when you're going to change the rules or create new rules as an agency, um, there's a law that's called the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA. And that law requires that agencies give the public and affected parties a meaningful opportunity to comment and engage on the kind of rule change or the new rule. The agency is supposed to collect feedback, kind of go back to the drawing board and consider all that feedback it got examine whether in light of the feedback from the public and interested parties, the proposed rule still makes sense, or maybe it has some unintended consequences that it hadn't thought of. Maybe the agency tweaks the rule a bit. In other words, it's kind of a back and forth. And the whole point of that Administrative Procedures Act is that we get rules and regulations that actually make sense. And so I think the first thing the industry is saying is process-wise, this is flawed. Why is that? And that's because under the APA, usually the agencies give the public and interested parties a couple of months. And in fact, in decades, the agency has never given less than 30 days. And here, Treasury only gave the public 15 days, but it actually wasn't even really 15 days because it was dropped on the Friday night before Christmas. So for all intents and purposes, it was actually six days. And I think one of the key issues here you see the crypto industry pushing back on is that the public and the stakeholders didn't really have any time to engage in a meaningful back and forth which is really what you want for smart rulemaking. It's, it's almost like Treasury wanted to bury this new proposed rule on their way out the door and hope that no one noticed. A lot of people in crypto were working over the holidays to respond to this for sure. Um, so that's the process. What about the substance of the proposal? Well, I think there's a lot of problems substantively. The first one I see is that it poses really big Fourth Amendment issues. I mean, generally speaking, the government does not need a warrant. It can just simply subpoena bank information. 
And that's largely due to a case um, from the Supreme Court in the 1970s called Miller. So as a result of that case, the bank records have largely been able to be obtained by the government with just a simple subpoena um, or upon request in some instances and not with a warrant. But, you know, that was in the 1970s. And the Supreme Court has been kind of chipping away at that, what's known as the third party doctrine. It's an exception to the Fourth Amendment. And the court, I think you've seen slowly move toward the recognition that as technologies change, people do have an expectation of privacy. Um, Now, the Supreme Court has not yet had occasion to consider or reconsider the Miller holding in the 1970s. Um, But here, I think this is really interesting because what you have here is a wholesale expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act. And it really sweeps in a lot more conduct. It's no longer just, do I have an expectation of privacy in my own bank records? This is requiring counterparty information. So we see this as a really kind of broad expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act. And it's unclear whether that case from 1970s would stand up today if challenged in the Supreme Court. Okay, so we've talked about the process issue with the lack of time for a meaningful back and forth, effectively just six business days for the feedback and comment period, given that it was a holiday period. And on the substance, we've talked about Fourth Amendment issues around the Bank Secrecy Act. What other substantive issues do you see, especially on this question of reporting requirements for counterparties, which is such a key part of this rule? The requirement that entities provide the name and address of their customers' counterparties or, quote unquote, other info that the secretary may require. We don't know what that other info may be. And then the rule goes on to say that uh, entities will have to not only provide this information, but confirm it and verify it. How is it a bank or an exchange supposed to verify their customer's counterparty? They don't have a relationship with that counterparty. They only have a relationship with their own customer. So they're, they're once removed from, from a party that they now have to not only collect the name and address of, but also verify and confirm that information. And, and the real problem is going to be that the rule is going to be interpreted differently by the entities and by the state regulators that license them and examine them. So you're going to have different entities interpreting that obligation in different ways. And then you're going to have the state regulators coming in and interpreting it in even more uh, ways. So it's completely ambiguous and it's going to present a lot of problems when regulators start to attempt to enforce it. Well, I find that really interesting coming from you is you used to be the superintendent of the New York Department of Financial Services, one such massive agency. Um, So I find it really interesting that you also think that it's going to lead to uneven application in that context. Yeah, I do. I mean, if I were, you know, back sitting in the office at at, at DFS, I don't know what we would do with this. And the likelihood is that we would come up with an interpretation that would differ from California and other states. And, you know, the impact on the industry where you have like so many of our entities at DFS were licensed in multiple states. I can't imagine the, you know, the difficult challenges that would present for, for, for those entities. It's really overbroad. I mean, the rule claims that it covers just self-hosted wallets, and that's what we've heard the Treasury Department and Secretary Mnuchin talking about, self-hosted wallets. But it's drafted in a way that requires entities to collect PII when customers are engaged in activities like staking or contributing to dApps. And the problem with that is that when you're transmitting assets to smart contracts, there is no identifiable counterparty. So this actually reaches a whole bunch of activity as currently drafted that I think Treasury didn't even intend to reach. So let's look at the timeline. Uh, Before the holidays, FinCEN uh, proposes this rule, short comment period during the holidays. Uh, The comments are in, over 6,000 of them. What happens next? Uh, we're expecting the final reg to become effective any day now. 
which is shocking. So within a week of receiving 6,000 comments on a very novel uh, expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act on a very complex matter, FinCEN will have read them, understood them, processed them, and be ready to, to propose this or make this rule final. But we expect folks to go to court and seek what's called a PI, a preliminary injunction. And what that would do is be asking the court to freeze the law, freeze this new regulation or stay it, and require FinCEN to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act, which requires them to give the public and the industry a quote-unquote meaningful opportunity to comment. And that should be at least a 60-day period to actually give us an opportunity in a meaningful way to comment on this proposed regulation. Okay, we're going to move to the bottom line. What should people take away from this? Well, the bottom line takeaway to me is that this proposal is flawed on both process and on substance. And really here what you've seen is the crypto industry has come together to oppose it. Historically, the crypto industry has been a little bit more playing defense. You've had a lot of regulators come out, make a lot of speeches, pass a lot of guidance, bring a lot of enforcement actions. And the industry has kind of been very reactionary to that. And here, what I think you've seen is the industry's coalesced with a lot of different players coming in and actually saying, no, we think this regulation is flawed on process and on substance. So I think one takeaway I'm seeing is this is about the crypto industry going on offense. Katie, Anthony, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Soren. Thanks, Soren. In our next segment, we're talking about trends in healthcare and especially the employer-funded healthcare space, given the breakup of Haven, the joint venture between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Haven was expected to find tech and data-focused solutions to the high employee healthcare costs for businesses. But it was announced recently that the effort was disbanding after three years, and there's been lots of commentary in tech, healthcare, and beyond on why the effort by these three corporate giants didn't succeed. We turn to A16Z Bio General Partner Julie Yu for a quick check-in on the bigger picture of innovation here and what opportunities this project actually highlighted, including for startups. Julie co-founded and led product teams at Healthcare Startups and was VP of Product at Generation Health, which is acquired by CVS Health. Julie, the expectation was that Haven would be able to leverage these large combined workforces for data collection and economies of scale, and that that would eventually lead to better patient outcomes and lower costs. The three companies combined have about 1.2 million employees. So why wasn't that enough? In the grand scheme of things, that's actually a pretty small number with regards to what it would take to actually affect change, whether it's around negotiating with providers, whether it's, you know, purchasing leverage, et cetera, et cetera. When you compare that scale to some of the other initiatives that are similar, um, it's actually, you know, far smaller. There's a group called HTA, which is the Health Transformation Alliance. They have roughly about 50 corporate members and represent about 7 million lives. So it's, you know, nearly an order, order of magnitude larger than Haven. Um, similarly, there's a Pacific Business Group on Health, PBGH, which is a similar organization as well. They're almost double HTA, so they're 15 million lives. There was a fair amount of social media commentary uh, just last week as this announcement of the disbanding was made of like, oh, you know, they figured out that healthcare is tough to disrupt. So what are the real challenges here for any effort of this kind dealing with something like employer-funded healthcare? Having been the founder of a company that actually tried to sell technology to the ossified legacy, you know, sort of incumbent healthcare system, there is a huge activation energy and level of friction that you need to overcome to be able to effectively deploy something if your strategy is to expressly integrate with the legacy healthcare system, which I think ultimately is very necessary for any 
healthcare solution to be able to get to real scale. A lot of the trend right now in employer-sponsored coverage is to do direct contracting with individual providers to get just better rates, essentially, than what you could get if you were just leasing network from the legacy carriers. And in order to do that, you just have to have enough volume to make it worthwhile, not just even from a discounting and sort of like pricing perspective, but even just managing a contract, you know, between a provider and a risk-bearing entity, like there's non-trivial overhead associated with that. So again, there is a fairly high bar uh, to sort of even get the right folks around the table and to do that in a way that provides sufficient coverage to every single employee and every single geography. On the flip side, what was so promising about this was that a lot of how I think you can overcome that friction is to build a virtual first approach to delivering care. And, you know, a lot of what we've talked about in light of the pandemic is the fact that we can now think about provider networks at at national scale instead of just local scale because of the advent of telehealth and the relaxation of many of the legislation and uh, regulation around practicing medicine across state lines. And so it goes back to what I wish they would have done or what they could have done is taken that virtual first approach using the assets that Amazon clearly has already built for their employees and said, why not use that as the lever to not have to rely on individual local entities to come to the table to negotiate with us and rather, you know, create national scale leverage uh, through kind of this virtual network based construct. Okay, so given this still very much unsolved problem that even these large corporations have struggled to get their arms around, What does this say for startups and what lessons can they draw from this? There are a lot of exciting dynamics happening in the employer-sponsored healthcare space. One of them is this notion of actually creating a virtual uh, hospital, right, like a virtual medical group, and not only applying that to your employee base, but platformizing it such that it can be a solution for other employers who are trying to solve the same problems, but not having to have every individual employer sort of build their own solution from scratch. Which was kind of the point of Haven. They wanted to make it so that everyone could learn yeah. from this and kind of improve the whole system as a not-for-profit not for organization. Exactly. That was supposed to be like the act two was like, once yeah. we solve it for us, then we can make it available to right. others. Um, now, you know, Amazon is doing that. And even in the last few days, we've seen announcements that They are hiring people to execute that strategy with their own Amazon Care platform product. Um, I think the big question there is, will they truly white label it like an AWS or will it be more like your Amazon marketplace where the brand relationship still exists between the consumer and Amazon and, but, you know, individual sort of businesses can sort of be a, a player on that marketplace platform that will actually have significant implications with regards to the appetite of other businesses to want to adopt it because there so much of the concern in healthcare is disintermediation of the patient relationship. And if this would add yet another layer of intermediation between the patient or the employee and, you know, the the risk-bearing entity and the providers, then I think there could be some concern. So I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Um, But that's certainly one area that I think we're going to continue to see a tremendous amount of innovation. We we see a, a number of startups going after that type of similar model where they can like just bring things to market at 10x the scale than you could with, you know, traditional provider approaches. The other area was also this notion of how do you create more consumer fintech type products to overlay and abstract out all of the complexity of healthcare spend. Um, And I grew up in Korea where there's a national health system. And I remember distinctly, I had a single card and no matter where I went or what I spent on, I just used that card. 
and behind the scenes, it took care of, you know, whether this was a covered benefit, was this provider in network, do I need to pay anything out of pocket? So all of that, you know, sort of what today we do via like snail mail and faxes was just embedded digitally into one single card. And so, you know, could there be an opportunity for like a JP Morgan type entity who clearly has expertise in those kinds of products um, to build a, um, a card that integrates your healthcare benefits, maybe has like a prime type membership component where you get additional, you know, discounts and, you know, membership type offerings as part of being in that quote unquote club. And then again, abstract out so much of the administrative overhead that actually very like significantly contributes to the high spend that we uh, exhibit in, in the healthcare market. Okay, Julie, so bottom line, what should we take away from this? There's been a lot of, you know, mudslinging and I told you so type narrative out there in the market with in response to this shutdown. I want to actually tip my hat to the founders of Haven. They saw a problem they took the initiative to solve it. They did it in a very high conviction way. And it didn't work like many new ventures don't. And, you know, they ultimately made what is a very tough call always in startups, which is to shut it down and move on and, you know, kind of exit with grace. It was a, an effort to execute on something that we've seen many other entities try to execute. It was not surprising that it was an effort that got started. It was also perhaps not surprising that it got shut down um, for a number of reasons, including potentially adverse incentive alignment, um, as well as you know just focus of what, what the set of companies could do given their relatively small scale. But I think it elevated the awareness in the industry about what would be possible using assets like what these companies brought to the table. And um, there is still a tremendous amount of headroom for innovators to build the kinds of solutions that they espoused uh, when they first launched this effort. Julie, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Aaron.